The Athletic. What is it with England captains and knee injuries? First, Leah Williamson, and now... Uh, let's bring you a breaking story here, uh, which is that Millie Bright has pulled out of the England squad for the final two Nations League games due to a knee injury. Uh, Millie Turner... And it couldn't have come at a worse time. If the upcoming Nations League results don't go England's way, the European champions and World Cup finalists won't qualify for the Olympics. So can the Lionesses pull through without their leader, Millie Bright? I'm Sophie Penny, and from The Athletic, this is Full Time Europe. A famous win for Belgium that has turned this group upside down again. Later on, we'll be chatting about Bunny Shaw after her first half hat trick against Spurs. Bunny apparently was a nickname given to her by her older brother because she loves carrots so much. But first, let's talk bright and Olympic qualification with the Athletics women's football reporter Charlotte Harper and the Athletics senior writer Michael Cox. Hello to you both. Morning, Sophie. Hello. Michael, Millie Bright had knee surgery before the World Cup. She recovered in time for the tournament, but now that injury is playing up again. Just describe to me the scale of the impact that this injury could have. Yeah, it is a big blow. I mean, Millie Bright's fitness, as you say, has been a big discussion point for most of this year. I think... In reality, I mean, World Cups—they're not movable for players. There's there's certain deadlines you've got to you've got to hit to be fit for them. And I think a lot of the time, players rush back. And it was clear from England's first game against Haiti at the Women's World Cup that Millie Bright wasn't anywhere near a hundred percent fit for that. And she did very well to recover and and play a very big role for the rest of the tournament. But I think sometimes when you rush the recovery you're never completely right. And while it's understandable that, you know, she wanted to be back in time for that tournament, sometimes it has a knock-on effect. And I think we've seen this season, she maybe hasn't quite been at her best, not as not as consistent as she was before this year. Obviously, without her, England without both Bright and Williamson, the first-choice centre-back pairing. And yeah, that's a big blow. I think she's England's best defender in terms of aerial balls, in terms of in the penalty box. And I think without her and Williamson, they lose their best defender in a traditional sense and their best defender in terms of playing out from the back as well. I think that's the difficult thing, isn't it? When you have back-to-back major tournaments year on year, when do you take the surgery? When do you take the time out? But Charlotte, why does women's football care so much about the Olympics? In women's football, it is really important, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think in men's football, no one's quite, sure what the Olympic competition is. Is it for youth development or is it a major tournament to be taken seriously? You'll have some squads put out a full strength team and others use academy products. Whereas women's football, it's fully invested in the Olympics. Everyone who is there wants to win for that gold medal, your best players on the pitch. And having spoken to Ellen White at the WSL Hall of Fame a couple of weeks ago, she was saying, you know, it's such a unique opportunity to be among that throng of athletes in that Olympic village with that vibe. This year, you'll have US, Brazil, Colombia, Canada, the big hitters. And anybody who saw London 2012, especially, and the crowds that came to watch women's football, it's another opportunity to get eyeballs in front of the game that maybe aren't so football orientated. So how do they get there? England are qualifying on Team GB's behalf. 
What do they need to do, Charlotte, results-wise, in these final group games of the Nations League against the Netherlands and Scotland to have a chance at qualifying? Firstly, they have to beat the Netherlands and they need to better the Dutch's 2-1 win against them. So they have to better that score. If they win against the Netherlands, they would then be level on points with them. But Belgium could go top if they beat Scotland on Friday as well. So once we pass that hurdle, then it comes down all to the last fixture with England against Scotland. And yeah, it will go down to the wire as to who will top that group and go through. So basically, England need to win both their games against the Netherlands and Scotland. And even if they do, it still depends on what Belgium do. Is that right? Exactly. Win both your games, but it's still out of your hands because it depends on Belgium's results. Michael, this is such a strange situation with Scotland. You've written about this before for The Athletic. What are the Scotland players going to be thinking? I mean, Sandy McKeever switched allegiance from England to Scotland recently. England qualifying for Team GB. What are they going to do about that game? It was all part of the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is a slightly surreal situation where... You could say the Scotland players are incentivised to lose the game to secure qualification for for Team GB. And certainly there's a couple of players, including Sandy McKeever, who might be involved. Realistically, I don't think that comes into their thinking. I think they obviously will want to beat England on home soil. But yeah, it's a very, it's just an obvious anomaly of the system that I'm surprised wasn't thought about beforehand. I don't understand how it works. You can't have all four home nations able to qualify on Team GB's behalf because that would give them an an unfair advantage. It's natural that they had to nominate England, so maybe there's no way around it. And it is a very strange situation for a few of the players, including Sandy McKeever, who, like you say, recently switched from England to Scotland and was part of the Team GB squad uh, in Tokyo. So presumably is up for the Olympics, would like to participate again. But her job will be to uh, to make sure England don't score goals. And if England don't score goals, then they won't top the group. They won't be at the Olympics. Surely they should have created some situation where Scotland and England couldn't be in the same group for the Nations League. But then again, the whole qualifying system is slightly bizarre, isn't it? That you could potentially have the World Cup finalists not making the Olympics. Charlotte, obviously the qualification system has changed this year, not qualifying through the World Cup qualifying through the Nations League. Do you think that's worked? Do you think that's a good idea? Or do you think it's potentially creating quite an odd situation? Pros and cons. Pros that a lot more competitive fixtures compared to this time last year or even two years ago when Serena Wiegmann first took charge and you were beating Latvia 20-0 or North Macedonia 10-0. And having that league system, so A, B, C, D, of the development of those nations... But the thing is then you're going to have a lack of, not that Serena Wiegmann rotates frequently anyway, but you're hardly going to play a second string or give other members of the squad game time like perhaps that we saw in Arnold Clark Cup this year if Olympic qualification is on the line. It's just ridiculously hard to qualify for the Olympics if you think about it. Of all the European nations at stake, whether that's Netherlands, Belgium, England, Spain, Sweden, Austria, uh, you've only got three spots. And that's three spots, but France already have one of those because they're the host nation. Yeah, exactly. So France host nation. So the winner of the third place, if France get to the final, will also go to the Olympics. Yeah, so it should be the two finalists, but if France get to the final, it will be the third place winner that goes. 
There's also a wider issue about why is the Olympics still a 12-team competition? Like, it doesn't make any sense. 12 isn't a natural number for a tournament. The men's competition is 16. I just can't see any rational reason why there's only 12 teams there. And it does it does a little bit dilute the quality because you've obviously you've got to have geographic spread. But you end up narrowing down the, the European nations who are very, very strong to just three of them. So it's it's very strange to me. I, I don't know why there's not more of a fuss about why that's a, that's the situation. Because then you end up with like third place teams going through from the groups anyway. So the, the competition itself becomes less competitive. I don't get that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Michael, I think you should have a job at like tournament planning. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a, the job would be done in 10 minutes, wouldn't it? You'd, you'd sit down and say, <laughs> look, 12 teams doesn't work. It has to be 16. But... Yeah, I, I find that very strange. It, it, to be honest, it makes me reluctant to watch the, the group stages of the the women's tournament because you end up with eight from 12 going through. So it's like you're watching it and the games don't individually mean that much. It's interesting when it gets down to the quarterfinals, obviously. But yeah, I find that very strange. I think that's a really interesting point. And you've got 32 teams at the World Cup, didn't you? That was the new expanded version. Obviously, they have to cram it into shorter sp- space of time for the Olympics. But yeah, I, th- I think that's a really interesting point for people to look at in future. Charlotte, we have to talk about Millie Bright missing. You mentioned about other members of the squad not getting game time with these Nations League games. Now they have to get game time. Millie Turner has come in. We don't know whether she will get game time. How do you think that they will go about replacing Millie Bright? I think Wiegmann will play uh, Jess Carter and Alex Greenwood as centre-back pairing. They're the most experienced. Uh, Alex Greenwood being a natural left-footed, forming that left-sided centre-back. Uh, Jess Carter has played really well, or did certainly throughout the World Cup, and has been the one to pick up minutes in the absence of, of Leah Williamson. And then that's the question of who shuffles over to left-back, whether that will be Neve Charles or Rachel Daly. Wiegmann doesn't have a shortage of depth in that centre-back position with Esme Morgan, uh, Maya Letizia can play there as well, Millie Turner coming in, Lotta Wuben moy but they just haven't had enough experience. And I don't think, given the pressure of the game against the Netherlands, Wiegmann will rotate from Carter and Greenwood. I think it's quite interesting because you end up with four players who I think of as fullbacks, really. I mean, Alex Greenwood has played centre-back for the last couple of years. Jess Carter's played a lot there. But they're not the kind of traditional, kind of solid, aerially dominant centre-backs. So we'll end up with a situation, really, where Wiegmann... Is, yeah, she's kind of got four fullbacks and four centre-backs in the squad, and the four centre-backs will all be in reserve. I mean, Robin Moy, Morgan, Letizia, Turner, all good players. But as Charlotte says, don't have that much experience. Uh, 17 caps between them and I think Wiegmann tends to I think she tends to just have her favourite players and try and get them on the pitch however possible and if that means playing you know players at fullback and centre-back or up front and left-back as in the case of Rachel Daly then she's happy to do that in terms of how England play I think it means they've got to be even more aggressive with the defensive line I don't think they want to be defending too much in the air but it's I mean it's a good partnership Greenwood and Carter I think have done very well for England over the last year I think Greenwood was probably England's most consistent player at the World Cup Jess Carter's had a great couple of years just doesn't make mistakes comfortable playing in a high line great recovery pace good in one one one-on-one situations as well so I don't think it's a huge blow but it is a certainly a different type of back line to what England are accustomed to what are they going to do if they're 
one goal down with 10 minutes to go and there's no Millie Bright to bring on up front. <laughs> <laughs> Send Jess Carter up there, winning header. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great question, though, because that was often England's plan B slash C, which they used to great effect uh, against Spain in the Euro quarterfinals. Knowing Serena, she'll have come up with another plan already, won't she? Right, we've talked defence. Next up, we'll be figuring out how England can convert more of their chances after a frustrating few games in front of goal. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. You're listening to Full-Time Europe from The Athletic. Right, let's talk about scoring because I think there's been quite a bit of frustration from England fans watching England in the recent Nations League games just in terms of number of chances created and how many of those are actually scored. Michael, do you think this is an issue? What do you think that England can do to address it? I think it has been an issue and I think it was a particular issue against Belgium because... The reverse happened at the other end. Belgium didn't really have many chances, but they converted all of them. To be honest, I don't think there's that much a manager can do in this situation. I don't think that you can just say, let's do four hours of shooting drills on the training ground because that comes at the expense of other uh, other parts of training. I think if you go on about it too much, it can be a bit of a psychological issue. You can get something into the players' heads that doesn't need to be there. I don't think they play different players because they play players who, who are accustomed to finishing well you've just got to keep on going you've got to keep on getting into the situations getting the ball to your centre forwards and you look at the scoring records of England's forwards I know sometimes they're playing against you know weaker teams but I mean Beth Mead's got 29 goals in 50 England games Russo 15 and 32 you know these are really good ratios so um, I don't think England can do anything different tactically or in terms of preparation but of course they do need to do need to score goals do you think it's more effective having Hemp and Russo together? Because I know you both actually spoke in the Athletic Football Tactics podcast about Serena Wiegmann and kind of the Dutch way of managing and she, the way she sees centre-forwards as as not just a goal scorer, valuing that link-up play. So what, what do you think works best in terms of that formation, Michael? I mean, I think it, it, the World Cup, there were quite specific circumstances why England ended up going with two through the middle. I tend to prefer just one. I think when England are at their best, they play with with wingers on both sides, whether that's Hemp, Kelly, Lauren James or Beth Mead, who's come back in, and just the one striker. I think Russo is pretty good as an all-rounder. I think she's good at bringing others into play. You know, I think at their best, England do play with 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, depending on the, the situation in the game. So they have got options. They are tactically flexible. But I do think one striker up front is is the way to go at the moment. Do you agree, Charlotte? Obviously, Beth Mead is also back, so that might have an impact on the formation that Serena Wiegmann chooses to play. I think where it worked was with Lauren Hemp and Alessia Russo up top is that 
Ruta had someone slightly closer to her, which allowed, when she dropped deep, they kind of dovetailed uh, back and forth. And I think Russo's really good with her hold-up play. She's excellent at that, better than Rachel Daly at that, but again, hasn't scored that many in, in front of goal in recently. And it's also about confidence. When you talk about a player playing with confidence, Beth Mead couldn't have had more going into the Euros. And again, we talk about that kind of qualification period where I just remember Wiegmann being like, three, four goals isn't good enough. Let's go and score 10, 15. And that really seemed to be the message hammered home. Then you had the Arnold Clark Cup and they proved themselves against Germany and Spain. But England went into those Euros just with this unwavering belief and Beth Mead thrived off that. And I think Beth Mead will be a, a significant boost to England, especially her goals at the weekend. It'll be tough for her, though, coming back, just in terms of expectation, I suppose, compared to the Euros. But confidence is something that, as, as Michael said, you, you can't really change much. You can't spend hours and hours. I think it was Alan Shearer who said he, if he wasn't scoring, he, he wouldn't go and practice more because it became more of a mental block. Yeah, England are going through a rough patch and they, and they have to find a way to get out of it. So before the World Cup, they'd only lost one game out of 32. And now they've lost three of their past five games. I think another thing to consider here is just the importance of home advantage. I mean, obviously the Euros was played on home soil. There was two rounds of the Arnold Clark Cup. There was the finalissima against Brazil. There was the game against the USA. England didn't really play away from home much over a long period of time. And the two games England have lost in this Nations League campaign have been away in Belgium and away in the Netherlands. And there's lots of other factors. I mean, injuries, maybe England have become slightly predictable. But I just think that, you know, there was a very long period of time where England didn't really play any strong teams away from home. And, you know, England got into maybe a full sense of security that they were maybe just 5% better than they actually were because they were always playing at home. The good thing, of course, is that the game against Netherlands is at Wembley. The game against Scotland is in Scotland, but, you know, not too far away. So maybe England will get through these last two games. But yeah, I just think the the home advantage thing is a, a massive deal here. And we know how Wiegmann has instilled that into the team. Like When she first came in, she encouraged the players to clap and engage with the fans even before the warm-up. And the players were like, no, like we, we have to earn that applause. We have to perform well and then they'll clap for us. And she completely reversed that. So she has, like she did with the Netherlands in Euros 2017, cultivated a kind of bubble wrap of... Uh, support for this England team, which I think we really will see at Wembley on Friday. And, and, you know, that is a big plus for England and it won't be easy for the Netherlands. So they play at Wembley, they play at Hampton Park. If the results don't go their way, is there a part of the players that will actually be quite glad of that rest, given the mad calendar that they have? It would allow them to be potentially better prepared for the future tournaments. And also, we have to remember that Team GB only made its women's football Olympic debut in 2012 when they were the host nation. And they didn't even play in 2016 because no agreement could be made between the home nations, England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. So there is a precedent for Team GB not being at the Olympics. I think if you're going to miss one 
out of a Euros, World Cup and Olympics, it would probably be the Olympics. But if you speak to the players, I spoke to Ellen White and she said, no, they're winners. They'll want to go. It won't be in their minds. You won't think, oh, no, you know, I'll just pass on that one. And the same with Serena Wiegmann. If they don't win, it's it's not going to be a massive blow, but it's definitely going to be a dent in their pride. And they always say it's getting to the top, which is hard, but staying at the top is the hardest. So I have no doubt that the players will be wanting to go to that Olympics, even though they have played every game in the last two major tournaments, having got to both finals. Yeah, and also we shouldn't forget that the Nations League is a tournament in itself. You know, it's not just qualification for the Olympics. And even though it's the inaugural edition, it's a new competition. Sometimes we don't know how seriously to take it. I mean, I remember being at Wembley when England won the finalissima, which was itself a bit of an invention. If you like, a friendly turned into a competitive game. And England absolutely celebrated winning that trophy like it was a massive deal. So, yeah, they will want to win. I must say, I, I kind of agree with what you're hinting at, Sophie, I think particularly considering all the injury problems that England have had over the last couple of years, I think just a summer off would be great. Otherwise, it's so many summers in a row where you're playing a tournament. But obviously, that's you know a different situation for the fans. I'm sure some people would love to go over to uh, Paris and, and watch England. I know, I know Charlotte is uh, particularly keen on uh, three weeks in Paris. So <laughs> yeah, they will, be, they will be trying to win. But I must say for the long term, if you look at, for example, if you're talking about what will give them the best chance of winning the Euros in 2025? Yeah, I'd say a summer off, to be honest. Right, we've got to wrap that one up. One team that didn't qualify for the Olympics is Jamaica, but Khadija Bunny Shaw has been shining bright in the WSL this weekend. More on her next. You're listening to Full Time Europe with Sophie Penny. 15 minutes. That's just about long enough to hang out the washing, I reckon. But for Man City's Bunny Shaw, that was all she needed to score a first half hat-trick against Tottenham in the WSL at the weekend. Well, Habi wants it. This is short. Bunny Shaw! What a finish! It's a first half hat-trick for Bunny Shaw! Michael, you've been looking at the goals. Let's talk about what made her so effective in those moments against Spurs. Yeah, it was a great hat-trick. I thought the the third goal was probably technically the best, the, the chest down and the finish kind of going away from goal. But the first two, I mean, the way she attacks the ball, I don't think there's anyone else in the WSL who can score goals like that so consistently. There's obviously some very good aerial players. You think of uh, Rachel Daly, for example, Alessia Russo, I think her movement's very good. But, you know, I've uh, I've done a few articles with strikers over the past couple of years with Alan Shearer with Gary Lineker these kind of my game in my words things and the way they talk about kind of a double movement you know going forward and then going back and trying to attack the space between the center backs she just has it down to a tee she's really really good when the ball is wide very good with the ball at her feet as well she can hold it up but I think the way that City play obviously their their game plan really especially after the departure of so many good midfielders last summer. It's all about Kelly and Hemp. It's all about getting the ball to them and getting crosses into the box. And Shaw's just the perfect striker for that system. I think in a way, this actually marks her return to form after the World Cup. 
because she was Jamaica captain, but she got a red card in the group stages against France. So she missed that Panama game. She was often isolated. She didn't get a chance to make an even bigger name for herself, essentially. Jamaica did well. They got to the round of 16 for the first time, which was a success, but it wasn't kind of Bunny Shaw's tournament. And I think that's about what you say, Michael, about that different service that she gets at Jamaica versus, you know, the Lauren Hemp's, the Chloe Kelly's out on the wing, providing that that ball for her. So it's nice to see her kind of flourish when she gets that service. Charlotte, what else have you noticed about her game style? What what makes her stand out and what makes her such a consistent goal scorer as well? I think uh, she's one metre 82, six foot. So very tall and yet she's very nimble. Like her footwork is extremely good and her movement as well. Obviously, we talk about her power and her physique, but it, it's her technical ability is what stands out to me, as Michael said, with that chest and swivel and the timing and the movement for her headers as well. So you've got that combination of power and precision. And when we're talking about Alessia Russo with hold-up play, Bunny Shaw has that in spades and is now being extremely clinical in front of goal as well. What I find quite interesting as well is that she said that with Jamaica, they have a big focus on plyometric work as well. So that's kind of getting speed and maximum force in short intervals, that explosive strength. Obviously, they produce a lot of top sprinters and she's got tips from the likes of Usain Bolt on that as well. So I think that's quite interesting to see that element of her play. And you can just rely on her, can't you? Last season, she scored 31 goals in 30 appearances. You know, she's Jamaica's record goal scorer, men's and women's. Even before she moved to Man City, golden boot with Bordeaux in Division A Feminine. So, yeah, she can definitely provide the goals on the pitch. Charlotte, what else should people know about her off the pitch? Is there anything that, that people might not know about the 26-year-old? Well, it's quite interesting she's called Bunny. Yeah. Um, so her first name is actually Khadija. But Bunny apparently was a nickname given to her by her older brother, because she loves carrots so much. <laughs> I absolutely love that. She actually comes from a big family. She's one of 13 children. This is really sad, actually, and I wonder if this is a motivator for her. I don't know, but she lost three brothers to gang-related incidents in Jamaica. A fourth died in a, a car accident. Um, but a lot of her family lives in Manchester, um, her uncle's big Man City fans. So that explains why she moved there, and I imagine her uncles are very happy with her right now. Uh, there's plenty more to come for Bunny Shaw, I'm sure. Uh, she's contracted to City until 2026. And this week, she's captioning Jamaica against Panama and Guatemala in the Gold Cup qualification. That's all for today. Thank you very much to Charlotte Harper and Michael Cox. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Sophie. You can read more about Bunny Shaw, the Nations League and England on The Athletic. Sign up today for just £1.99 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com slash WSL. When this show ends, you should leave us a quick rating and review and follow Full Time Europe on your podcast feed. To get in touch, send us an email on fte at theathletic.com. Speak next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic.